To love learning. To laugh. To love. To be loved. To see beauty. To understand. To bring grace. To the things that matter most. This is Psychology America with Dr. Alexandra. Welcome to my show. For every life stage, we have questions. Let's enhance our lives together as we explore the things that matter most. Kevin. Yes, Alex. Wonderful to see you. (laughs) Great to see you too. Yes. Can you please introduce yourself? I will. Uh, I'm Kevin Noble Millard. I'm a professor of law at Syracuse University. I also, uh, that's my day job and uh, my night job or my side job is writing for the New York Times. I write arts, uh, some politics, um, and I've been a professor for 15 years now, a uh, law professor, and I concentrate on issues about fatherhood, uh partnership, non-marriage, interracial relationships. And um, so I'm excited to talk about some of these issues with you on your cool podcast today. Thank you for coming on today. Delighted to spend time with you. Yeah, always. (laughs) So let's begin like this. Sure. Your six-year-old calls you Mimi (laughs) and your four-year-old started calling you Mommy in preschool. Yes. So I never really wanted to be called dad or father or pop. And so when Hampton, that's the six-year-old, started calling me Mimi, it was mostly because he couldn't really say any of the other words. And so I think I probably encouraged it. He started calling me Mimi and then it just kind of kept on and then I would respond to that. So it's stuck now. Um, with the younger child, you know, she just follows whatever he does because that's what younger siblings always do. And she started calling me Mimi. And then, but for a while, she started calling me Mommy too. So I'd go and pick her up from school and, you know, like there's the reuniting thing. You know, she hasn't seen me all day. I go pick right. her up and she runs in my arms. She's like, Mommy! Right? And I loved it. <laughs> Because then, like, you know, all these other parents at school are, like, you know, looking for, you know, my partner Iris to show up, and it's only me, right? And then now, sometimes she'll call me. to figure that out. Figure it out, right? And then, like, what makes it weird is, you know, because she doesn't really look like me that much, right? So it's like, okay, who is this random, like, Italian girl, you know, coming up to me, like, saying, mommy, right? And so... Now she mostly calls me Mimi. Sometimes she says she wants to call me daddy. And then I was like, no, I, I like Mimi. Let's stick with that. Um, hmm. And how do other people react to that? They're always like, what does she call you? Uh, and especially like with older women. Yeah. They are called Mimi a lot. That's their grandma name. I have heard that a lot for grandma. Yeah. And then sometimes I'll hear other kids calling their grandma Mimi and I will turn around like, you know, what, what do I need to do? Like, you know, you need something like you need a, you know, a (laughs) pirate's booty or something. Yeah. Every time I hear it, it's so (laughs) funny. So like, there's this kind of community between me and grandma's like, you know, kind of a knowing nod, like, yeah. We're memes like, all together. Um, but I, I like the way that that name, at least for me, kind of hopefully reflects that we have like a different type of relationships between like fathers and children. Um, 
How's that? Well, because in in my mind, right, like, and and I study this, right? This is my research area, so I devote like you know inordinate amounts of time, amount of time, thinking about terms and what they mean and how this comes up in law. Like when I think of dad, my mind immediately goes to like someone who's like fixing things around the house or they're like mowing the lawn and black socks and sneakers. Um, they watch a lot of TV. They do like fantasy football, stuff like that. And then like, that's never been my jam ever. Um, and I stayed home with both of them uh, during paternity leave. You know, I'm an academic, so I would get a full semester off, then plus the summer. Um, so I would be home with them for like, a, you know, the majority of their, you know, preschool and formative years. And, and I spent a lot more time with them than my partner did, actually. And so I think just that closeness and that proximity of me and these children together, like we have... I think, you know, like a good bond that I I hope is on the level of them and their mother, right? Yeah. Because like I was there, you know, like when they took their first steps or, you know, during the day, like giving them lunch. Um, and it's always been like that. And this is kind of the first summer because it's, you know, May of 2019 right now. This is one of the first summers where they haven't been home with me. And so I'm mm. still kind of figuring out like, okay, like I have all this new freedom now, you know, <laughs> I can go back to like, you know, kind of being like full-time professor and writer now because there's not as much like day-to-day parenting stuff for me, like caregiving during the day now. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's a different summer. And they call mm. Iris mommy? They call her mama. Mama. Yeah, they call her mama or mama. Um, and yeah, they don't really call her mommy. If they do say the word mommy now, it's still referring to me. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Because then suddenly they'll come up and they'll be like, oh, mommy, do this, blah, blah, blah. And then they'll kind of catch themselves and they'll be like, oh, Mimi. Um yeah, so then it's definitely mama, <laughs> then mommy. And then sometimes I'll joke with them. I'll be like, call me mommy. And they'll be like, no, you're not the mommy. You're the Mimi. And, I'm, and I think like, oh, I wonder what Mimi means to them, right? So like, they're moving towards that, Mimi. Yeah. And Iris is mama. Yeah. Like today we were at a bakery, this thing around the corner from our house here in Manhattan. And... um you know, it's this two-story um, thing, and they were up on the second floor, and they're they're just really loud children, and then just like <laughs> so loud, and I'm a loud person too. Like they were like Mimi, like you know, waving really loud, and I could he's just feel the eyes like of everyone there. Like who it really is Mimi? breaks a lot of yeah. barriers because on top of it, Mimi just sounds so feminine. It totally does. Yeah. It totally does. And the thing, you know, I kind of like it too. Um, and like, I'm always thinking like, will they call me this when they're older? Like, you know, when they're like in their twenties or something, or they can get on the phone and be like, me, but I still call my mom, mommy. Like fully, like, and I'm 46 right now. I'll admit that I do too. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes like I'll switch it to mamãe, which is in Portuguese. Oh, okay. That's it's still funny. mommy. Yeah. Oh, it's still say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I've never, I've never said the word mom. I never said the word dad. Um, 
I would like to think that I am just as capable of parenting as Iris is or as like any mom is, you know, yeah. like I, you know, care about a lot of stuff in a bag. Uh, you know, I have kind of put a slight hold on my career a little bit. Um, things have slowed down since I had children. Um, you know, and then like, at least in our house, the gender roles are a little reversed. I mean, she could have a completely different take on this. She has a, a demanding job. Very demanding job. She yeah. works like, you know, hours. she's a corporate lawyer and then she's up for promotion in the next year. Here um, in the city? Here in, in the city. city. Yeah. And so it's great, you know, the arrangement where at least in our house, like I'm more of like the house caretaker. Like I'm the one that's like, I picked all the how the apartment looks and, um, yeah. you know, like I'm the one that kind of more keeps things clean in the house. If she hears this, she's going to hate me. And, um, <laughs> uh, she's a little more on the food and shopping stuff, but like, and I you totally like to stapled think an entire wall of, of ferns. And ivy. Yes. Yeah. It's like a big green wall on one of the, um, living room walls here. Um, yeah, so like we jumbled things up a little bit and and I think that when we moved into this apartment it was our conscious decision to jumble things up gender-wise like hmm. we're in a partnership, we're not married. Um we had a lot of talks about this and I was really um adamant on the way that we would come together wouldn't be so bound by like okay, I'm going to be the one that earns and you're going to be one that supports because I'm definitely more of a supporter. I'm definitely not the wage earner in, in this house by any means at all. Um, and and it works out that, you know, she has uh, more of the economic center of our relationship and of this family. And then we both share in the ways that we bring up the children. Um, How do you think that affects yeah. the power balance in the relationship, the economic piece? Um, well, you know, there are so it's so weird. There are a lot of articles on this, like where men do not like earning less than their female partners, or that that can lead to divorces or breakups. And then me, on, I'm on the side, like, oh, I'm really hoping for your promotion next year. <laughs> um, I, you know, because like I, you know, from the very beginning when we first met, this would have been in 2006. Uh, six, uh, two, yeah, let me get it right. 2006, uh, you know, I never made more. I, I will never make more than she is. And then like, it's not even like I'm fine with this, but then like, I knew that's what the situation was. And right. I knew like, I'm not going to sit around and be mad about this forever, <laughs> you know, thinking like, Oh, how am I contributing to this family or whatnot? Like I need to support people. Um, and I think that there are a lot of different ways that you could support. 
And I study um, these gender dynamics in families uh, as a law professor. And men have traditionally been thought of as the economic breadwinners. And when um, when couples split up, because that's what family law is, it's a class about divorce. And when couples split up, the contributions that they look at from both people in the marriage, they're always looking at what the man contributed financially to the family. And then when the man has to pay child support, when they do have children, it's always in money. So then like in situations where say the man doesn't have any money and he can't pay child support, it should be a way, there should be a way where he can pay in different ways. Like pickups at school, spending time with the kids, um, oh. cooking dinner, like being more creative instead of just pinning men that with money. That would be creative because totally. we always talk about the economic value of domestic duties. Yes. Because yeah. there is an economic value. Totally. Uh, but I that's the first time I'm hearing about actually putting numbers to it in a divorce settlement situation. Yeah. yeah. And then because especially like, say if you have a minimum wage earner, um, you know, they're, you know, hourly salary, not hourly salary, hourly wage. They don't have a ton of money. And then they're supposed to give like a couple hundred dollars, like say they might have like different children with different mothers and they're paying all this child support all over but they might not have enough left for themselves. They might not even be able to give that much to each one of these children. They might be unemployed. It's hard for them to keep a job. But can we think of like them contributing in other ways and not just thinking of them as like a bank account? So there is 40% of child support is unpaid. The non-payment of this money to these children is the major cause of childhood poverty in the United States. Ooh, and I so, did not yeah. So when we think about like what men are contributing to families, right? Being a good father, being like, you know, a good husband means like having a steady job. No, it's not, right? It could be like, they're there. Do they read to the kids at night? Do they give them baths? Um, do they comb their hair? You know, just like simple right. things that women are normally thought of having that responsibility. But like, say when the people are getting divorced and we're like assigning like, okay, this is how much you need to give for child support. What about like, okay, you need to take the kid for like three days every week um, or four days and like, you know, joint custody. So so it's not only about numbers, but it's about time. It's about hours. It's about hugs and affection. Yes. And that's like totally touchy have feeling. Have you written that up, Kevin? I have not, but some of my uh, colleagues have done this. And uh, there's a, a teacher uh, at Seton Hall Law School. And so she's devoted a good deal of her research to not deadbeat dads, but dead broke dads. And so she has linked to this very interesting study that kind of attacks this stereotype of unmarried fathers, especially African-American fathers, as not being responsible fathers, right? You know, like mm -hmm. they don't have enough money to pay their children. Um, they're kind of like hit it and quit it dads. You know, they're all in it for the sex, but they don't want any of the responsibility that comes with the children afterwards. But this amazing study, which 
examined like thousands of fathers and it did it by race, by, um, by, uh, white fathers, black fathers, Latino fathers, just those three groups. And what they found in every, almost every single measure, there were like 10 different categories for married and unmarried fathers. And it was like, do you read to the children daily? Do you bathe the children? Do you cook them dinner? Do you pick them up from school? Um, and there was another one, some other type of, um, like, do you play with the children? Mm-hmm. And on every single one of these categories, the people that would spend the most time were black fathers. And it's something, there's this myth of this like yeah. deadbeat father, you know, where it's like, oh, you know, I got a lot of baby mamas, you know, like I'm kind of pimping out, you know, like I'm so cool. And, you know, like that's all the women's responsibility to take care of these children. That's like a stereotype. Like that's what Mm. we see in film. That's what we see on the nightly news, you know, like all these people, you know, like doing bad things. But the reality, just like your everyday guy, especially if it's a guy that doesn't have a lot of money, how are they contributing to caring for their kids? They're spending the time with these kids. And the study found that and the study found that black fathers fathers are actually more involved than white fathers and mm. uh, and then Latino fathers as well. And are so more involved are, than uh, white fathers? Um, yeah, black fathers are more involved than white fathers and then also Latino fathers. Mm. And But we don't think that. Like you can even go outside in New York and I will say like if we're talking about, this is a psychology podcast, we're talking about implicit biases, like you can go outside and see like a black guy pushing a stroller around and you're like, oh, isn't that interesting? Right? Like, because what else is he supposed to do? He's supposed to be like hanging out on the corner, like with his friends Tyrone and Jamal. Or it, like when we see him, like with a little baby and it's just him, there's no mom around. Yeah, he's doing his business. He's not an anomaly. It's not a weird thing for him to do that. But I think that your average person on the street will look at that and say, like, what a responsible man. Right. Where if that same guy were like a, you know, blonde guy or a white guy, would Mm -hmm. they kind of have that same assumption that has been broken by seeing him pushing around a stroller? Maybe not. Right. Or if that person was like Mm -hmm. a female, but then we see like an African-American male doing the same thing. And it's like, well, I actually noticed that this is happening where you're not noticing that from other people. Kevin, your life you have been battling stereotypes yeah. your whole life yeah. and or assumptions yeah. about who you are supposed to be. Yeah. And I remember when we were at Duke and yeah. we walked into a cafeteria um, oh, yeah. and a woman coughed Oreo. Yeah. As in Oreo the cookie. Yeah. In your direction. And can you explain to listeners what that meant and what that felt like? Yeah. So what year were we? Probably like sophomores. Sophomore year, I'm thinking. Yeah. So we're probably 20 years old, right? We're getting food. Like as we were always, you and I eating a lot. (laughs) (laughs) When I think of us in college, like we were always eating. you kept your shape and I only did because I was running track. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we ate a lot. And so uh, someone comes up and, you know, 
very passively aggressively, but like kind of the aggressive emphasis, um, you know, coughs Oreo, right? And so Oreo is like black on the outside, white on the inside. And I guess because this is, you know, like you and I were eating together or a lot of my friends that I had were like white, you know, and this was like in the 90s. So like diversity at Duke was this, you know, and the racial dynamics on campus were quite different than what they are now. Um, It's a lot more of a diverse, open, accepting campus now. But, you know, at that time, they were still going through a lot of these issues. And so for her to say that, you know, she's saying like, you are not fulfilling what I believe is the way that Black people should associate with other black people on campus, right? Or white You're not, yeah, or white people. You're not doing enough, of, you know, like black things on campus, the way you talk, right? And then we're all at Duke, which is ridiculous. You know, like everyone yeah. worked really hard to get there. Everyone is like, you know, doing great things now. And I also think it was probably a function of age, you know, at that moment, you know, this is our second year in college. People are still trying to define who they are away right. from their parents. They're living on their own. And, you know, some people, especially at that age, really are kind of affirming their own cultural identity. Mm-hmm. Like it might be their sexuality or like where they're from or their identity of like what they're going to be later. And they can be very strong about that. And they think yes. they know everything. And partially the age, right? Yeah. And there are different models of stages of racial identity. Oh, okay. And they're similar in that there's usually a beginning stage where mm. you're in complete denial that differences exist, right? Okay. But it's more like an ignorant denial. Okay. Then there's a stage where you might say, all white people are good, all black people are bad. Okay. And then it might flip to all black people are good and all white people are bad. Wow. Um, and But the highest stage is always a stage where you just look at the heart of the person you're talking to or the values. Right. And it's like, oh, okay, I really connect with this person. Right. Yeah. And like you and I just went to our reunion, our 25th reunion a couple (laughs) of weeks ago. And then some of these same people that I thought were, you know, not so nice in college were perfectly nice now, you know. And I saw that as well. Yeah. Because we're all in our 40s and it was like, oh, you know, where do you live now? Or you know, like I saw this thing, you know, a couple of years ago, it made me think about you, you know, like connecting in a different way. Cause it yeah. wasn't so much about like affirming who we are like right then and right now, but it was like, let's connect because we all had this common experience. Like we went on a journey together, like yes. in North Carolina at this school, we're all in the same place for four years. And then that's something that we're celebrating 25 years later. And we all certainly grow. I mean, yeah. as a psychologist, I believe people grow, people change. Yeah. Not everyone, but I certainly think it's possible. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's fascinating. Like just think of when we go back for like our half century reunion, like 50 <laughs> years, like yeah. were, will there be growth and change from, you know, at that period, like whenever, what year would that be? Like 2044? (laughs) I think that's what it would be, 2044 at that time. Like we're all like old, you know, gray, we're in spectacles, stuff like that. Like are people going to change, you know, like in these wonderfully grand ways, you know, like where we're 
kind of thinking, well, we did a lot of stupid stuff when we were a lot younger. Um, how are we now? And so I really enjoyed the reunion in a way that I didn't think I was going to because I was mm. thinking like, you know, some of these people weren't that nice. Like, I don't want to see them. Um, I'm going to have I these uncomfortable conversations. That in spite yeah. of, of the obstacles or suffering that you might have experienced, that senior year you ran for class president and you won. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and part of the thing that I really enjoyed that year was working on bringing people together in ways that were not really that strong at Duke, right? Because it was very racially divided, right? Like there was self-segregation by campus at the time. Yeah. Um, I personally never experienced any kind of hostility except for when I was with you in the cafeteria yeah. and that hurt me. Yeah. And of course I knew what happened to you otherwise because yeah. we were close friends. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I I've always when I have students now that go to Duke um, I like to ask them, you know, what is it like for you, especially the black students that I have now? Um, there was a student that I had this year who graduated from Duke, I guess, four years ago. And she was like, no, you know, it's just great now. You know, like, you know, not I'm sure it's not like all hunky dory in every respect, but it seems that it's much more developed in their kind of like celebration of difference and how... um the population, I think, of people of color at the school is probably double than what we experienced while we were there. Because it was yeah. definitely very much more of a white campus at that time. And I think mm -hmm. that kind of... um average student, like, you know, what is your classic Duke student? That picture has changed, right? Where it'd be like maybe before like some rich kid from private school from Atlanta or something like that. And then now I think it's much more of like, okay, there could be like, you know, somewhere from New York or California, like there are way more Latinos at the school. Like, you know, there were like, there were very few. There were like three people. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and I can remember like all of them and, you know, and not a lot of <laughs> Asians on campus, but there mm -hmm. is, it's so much better now. And I think that probably the higher population, like more people are used to being around, um, people of different backgrounds. And then I think it empowers those people as well to feel more comfortable in that school because they're not mm -hmm. the only one like in their class, in their dorm, in their activity. Yes. Um, you get power in numbers. Yeah, that was like a question I think that I have is, if you're saying that the, the highest level of identity is seeing what's in their heart, how mm. do we as a society get to that point? Do we get mm, it through? Yeah. It sounded like with diversity, yeah. it enables you to reach that point because the more you get exposed to people of different backgrounds, yeah. it enables you to see inside their heart and who they are. Yeah. As opposed to if you were isolated or segregated off, you wouldn't be able to get to that point. And it should be at a college, right? Like those, it should be like the admissions committee is literally picking how they want the city to look, right? You know, like they're creating a community, right? And it's like, okay, this is how we want to balance it. Like, you know, we want to have like equal numbers of men and women. Um, we want people from all over the world and we're going to try to create this really dynamic community. That so it's a way of learning. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's like, 
that's like the best part of it, right? Because I can hardly remember anything about the classes that I took in college, but I can remember like the hours that we spent in the dining hall, like talking about like everything. Um, the people. The people. It's everything, yeah. right? And you're living with them. And I think just like having those everyday experiences, like just really boring experiences, right? You know, just like that person brushes their teeth or like they <laughs> go to bed early, right? You know, not the kind of stuff that we would see like on TV in a movie or like, you know, in popular culture, which is kind of a narrative that is created and also edited, right? Like how we receive all of this information, it's been filtered through some other type of source, right? But then we're seeing this on the ground, Right. So talking about that, you know, the black guy pushing the stroller in like right. in New York, that is a boring, just everyday experience. Right. And we compare that one individual experience to this kind of grand narrative of what we think of as possibility, as a possibility for black people and then also for fathers. And it should right. be like those everyday experiences should match whatever that much larger narrative is. And there's this kind of discord between those two things. And it's like, oh, this is different than what I believe I've learned. Right. You know, like, like every, like you can see movies that are out there and it's like, okay, this is what women do. This is what men mm -hmm. do. This is where we get all of our stereotypes from. And we have experiences that counter that all the time. But I think we might even discard those everyday experiences because they don't fit into this grand narrative that we've learned. Not only have you experienced this in your mm -hmm. life, I, I feel like your life mission so far has been to challenge all of these different types of biases because in my research about you, what you've been doing <laughs> lately, I learned that your PhD dissertation was on mixed race in the United States. Yeah. And I want to mention to listeners that your partner, uh, Iris, she's Asian. Yeah. I, well, I just met her for the first time. Yeah. In the lobby downstairs. Yes. Yeah. With so my you're loud in a mixed children. Race <sighs> partnership. Yeah. Yeah, the the main thing like in the dissertation and that research is carried through in my everyday research now was about how do we make people's personal stories legitimate and believable. So this, you know, I, I guess it's a different way of kind of attacking this whole thing about mansplaining, right? You know, like okay. mansplaining where like somebody else is telling you about your own reality. And I think that's the thing. That's my biggest pet peeve of anything in the world, right? You know, where it's like, okay, we're driving to my house, right? And someone's like, okay, this is the way that we should go. These are the best directions, or this is what MapQuest says, or this is what, you know, the directions say. And then you have a personal experience of how you drive to your house. You understand that. But then someone else who might have more authority will say, this is the better way to do it. You're wrong. And so... Where do you feel this? I feel that, like, what do you mean, like... Yeah, what... Um, how do I how do I experience that? Yes. So take, for example, like uh, a black person who says that they are a descendant of Thomas Jefferson. 
right? This was a huge thing in like the early aughts, right? There were all of these people who said that they were descendants of someone named Sally Hemings, right? Like Jefferson had this relationship with Sally Hemings, right? So the Monticello Association, and this is what I wrote in my uh, dissertation, wanted to exclude these black descendants who said they were descendants of Charles Thomas Jefferson because they thought, well, that could not have happened in the past, right? And it's like, Absolutely, it could have happened, right? Because Jefferson owned this woman. Like, you can kind of pick who your partners are because you own their bodies, right? We don't know what their relationship was like, but there's evidence. And then now there's scientific evidence that these people were actually right. But the Monticello Association wanted to exclude these people because they said that your story is false. And so there are so many of these stories where someone is asserting their own identity, but a larger mm-hmm. entity is telling them that they're wrong, right? Like it didn't, it, you are wrong because that was illegal at that time. It could not have happened or, um, kind of like Holocaust deniers, right? Like yeah. there's no thing, such thing as the Holocaust deniers or those kids that were shot at that school, Sandy Hook in Connecticut, right? You know, like oh. where the parents are saying mm-hmm. like, this actually happened to us. And someone else is saying like, no, you're lying or no, there's no real evidence of this. Mm-hmm. And that's their own reality, right? And so like, in my own research, in my own life, like I want those stories to be heard and to be believed and to make sure and certain that everyone's voice is appreciated just for what it is. And they don't have to like have some external source that is granting them legitimacy, right? But we're just yeah. taking their own story to be true for what it is. And this has happened in law like over like hundreds and hundreds of years, right? Women weren't allowed to testify in court. Like black people weren't allowed to testify in court. And especially if you're doing this against like someone who would be like, you know, an esteemed member of the community, like a property owning white male, like you, you know, that person steals from you, that person takes something from you, you had no recourse because your voice did not count. And so this is something that I find important. How can we make everyone's stories believable and legitimate and make them count? I wonder what um, you want them to be more believable and to be more legitimate. What are your ideas? Well, the thing that I've been working on lately is looking at popular culture, especially film um, now, about how film captures these experiences. And I think that there's more of a push now, and especially in the past year where we've had these major blockbuster films like Crazy Rich Asians or um, Wonder Woman or Black Panther, where it's like, here we have stories about African-Americans, we have stories about Asian people, stories about very strong women that did not happen 10 years ago, right? And then so now there's this opening that's been created where it's like, these stories are great. These stories are interesting. People want to see their own lives and experiences reflected on the big screen. You know, because something like this philosopher Hannah Arendt had said, um, 
There is no reality. I know I'm butchering the quote, but this is generally the gist yeah. of it. Um, there's no reality unless a story has been told about it, right? Kind of like, you know, if a tree falls in the forest, does it make a mm. sound? And so now a lot of trees are making sounds, right? We have like these wonderful stories about like middle-class African-American families, like that TV show Blackish, or um, we have more things about like women's experiences that are written and directed and produced by women. And, you know, like not like some guys writing about like, this is what we think that this woman's experience is, right? But more realistic um uh, representations of what these stories are. And so like, whether this is like a story about fatherhood, whether it's a story about like, you know, Southern Jews, you know, like things that mm-hmm. kind of dis- dispel stereotypes. I think that one of the easiest ways of correcting people's, um, assumptions about certain populations is by making more programming, right? Making more movies, telling more stories, yeah. writing songs, right? Because so the part stories of that is are important. Yeah. Is, uh, for those groups to have the access and the power and to the be power able to do it. Yeah. To do that. Right. To share their stories. Yeah. And what was interesting, like I was not a big Game of Thrones fan, but I watched the last two episodes, right? And one of the last things that they had said in there, and I was really taken by this, they were saying that stories are the most important thing that hold a community together, right? Because you take mm-hmm. everything away, but what else do people have but legends? myths, right, that define who a people are. And we have these myths right now currently in America that are kind of one-sided. And I think it's about diversifying these stories and like folding more people into the fabric and the narrative of what it means to be American. And that addition about like diversity, I think that grants these other millions of different experiences, it grants them legitimacy. I think, don't you think also the appeal is not only to the demographic that's represented in the actual story, but people who have no experience in their entire life and then they see it and they're like, wait a minute, yeah, I can relate to this. Right. I thought that was just, you know, my culture. You share the same thing and then immediately that creates the bond Right. And there forms the connection. And so that's why it's so important, I think, right, to represent different cultures who are normally not represented. Oh, totally. Like, do you remember this movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding? Yes. You know, it was it was really commercially (laughs) successful. And it wasn't because like all these Greek people were going and like, oh, this is like I understand this. But it was it resonated with so many different cultures, right? Because people Mm -hmm. are like, oh, my God, like I'm Puerto Rican and my family is totally Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, like I'm from this huge black Southern family and we totally have, you like nosy grandmas too, or like, you know, some, (laughs) you know, older person that doesn't understand vegetarianism, stuff like that. And so the reason that it was so wonderful, you know, is one example. And one, like you never see movies about like Greek people a lot in the United (laughs) States, right? 
because it was so universal in its appeal. And I don't know if you remember, but it, it was in the movie theaters for like an extraordinarily long period of time because everybody was able to see themselves in each one of these experiences. And so I think one of the good things about seeing stuff like that, it makes everyone a little bit Greek, right? Uh, <laughs> or, you know, because they're like, oh yeah, I can relate to that. My favorite, <laughs> my favorite <laughs> line in that movie is <laughs> they're in the diner. And I think it's the mother. She says, yes, the man is the head of the household, but the woman is the neck. And she can turn the head wherever she wants. (laughs) That's right, 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 yeah. Yeah, and people see that and they're like, my mother said that to me, right, you know? Um, And I've... And I'm a law professor, right? So then, like, I've related this to law because I think, like, representation in popular culture, it's actually kind of an unrecognized function of government, right? Because it's like, how do you get people to obey law, right? One of the easiest ways of doing this is by controlling popular culture, right? It's like propaganda. We don't think we have it here in the United States, but we Mm. totally do. Like there've been production codes on like things that you can and cannot depict in movies and television. And the, um, the For mission statement to obey the law. To, well, no, like so. Say there, um, these all stopped in 1967, but it was like you can't depict anything about, um, you know, desecration of the flag. You can't um, present interracial marriage. You can't have anything about homosexuality. Um, nothing about adultery. People can't drink on, you know, or drunkenness. Nothing mm-hmm. like that. And so we think of this era being like very pristine. Like people think like. Like, oh, these are the good old days because, like, everybody was very respectful these golden years. No, it wasn't at all. But that's <laughs> how it is memorialized in all of this popular culture. So people believe that that's how it was because that's how the culture was written. And mm-hmm. so... The, in the these, stories that are the, left. The stories that are left. It's yeah. what remaining, you know, like, and there were all these other millions of stories that were out there that were just not recognized mm, as being legitimate mm. or being anything realistic, right? And so um, in these mission statements um, that they would have for these production codes, it would say that television or, or movies have a very strong effect on how people are obedient to the law. I mean, this was part of it, right? It wasn't an arm of government, but it was very governmental-like, right? You learn about like what's right and what's wrong through seeing these Mm. things. And, you know, people would say like, oh, I've never experienced this before. They've never seen it because they haven't seen a movie about... um, um, you know, like uh, a, a Puerto Rican family from Georgia, right? You know, you think like, oh, yeah. there are no Puerto Ricans that live in Georgia. It's because like, no, there's no TV show about that, right? Uh, because that hasn't been, there's no space in our mind that has been created there because we don't know about a book or a story, right? But then these mm-hmm. stories, you know, again, it's important for defining who we are and then also for letting other people know that these experiences are universal and this is how we learn more about the world. Now do you think because yeah. of streaming services like Netflix that we have an you know infinite number of possible content to actually expose 
the world yeah. to different cultures. Yeah. Whereas before, when you had three broadcast networks, yeah. it limited the amount, and then you can then further limit it even further on what the government wanted. Now, yeah. if you want to expose people to a million different types of cultures and religions, yeah. you have a vehicle to do it. Yeah. Yeah, get on YouTube and learn about like the craziest stuff ever. You know, go down that YouTube funnel. <laughs> you know, um, but you know, and it's it's like when people take pictures on their phones now, like that's how they preserve their memories, right? And you know, it's like if you don't take a picture, it didn't exist. If you didn't post it, it didn't exist, <laughs> right? And then people are definitely creating their own narratives, like they're presenting their face, their avatar to the world through their Instagram, their Facebook, their Twitter or whatever. And, but there's a whole other, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? And so we're still at the very tip of the iceberg, you know, but there's the whole other part of it that make people, you know, like fascinating, complex, rich creatures. And so like, if we're trying to educate more people about, you know, their commonalities, I think it's about enlarging the scope of those stories and making them available to a wider net of people. That is um, why I think that internet is going to help bring more world peace. Yeah. Just the contact. Yeah, right. I think that's true. I think that's totally true. I, it's weird that you say that because I've never thought of it in that way. Um, you know, it, like I'm thinking like when we were in high school, like how would you go and do a research project? You go to the library, right? Mm -hmm. And you're reading all these books. Like, you know, the things are there, but like, you know, you have to make the decision to go and do this. I mean, you would still have to make the decision to go and, you know, like, you know, read about, you know, like some population or whatever in a different part of the world. And there's so much information that's out there on the internet now. And it still could be where people exist in their own silos of belief. You like, you know, like you could stick to your conservative one, you could stick to your liberal one, you could stick to your conspiracy theory, whatever. But there's still that potentiality there. To access different to points of view. Yeah, exactly. And different people. Yeah. I mean, even some, I'm thinking about some lonely patients who have had trouble socializing and mm. that's what they need to work on. Yeah. They might begin through the internet and they might make a friend from a totally different part of the yeah, world right. through a video game. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that's yeah. how they start. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've never played video games like that, but I think it'd be so interesting, you know, like it'd probably be like, you know, you're playing video games with some like 16 year old kid, you know, in Taiwan, <laughs> you know, or something. And it's and just so easy to make that happen. Yeah, yeah. It makes the world smaller, right? And, you know, there's all these theories about how the world is actually a lot smaller than what you think it is, right? Like six degrees of separation mm -hmm. or, um, um, what is this other one? Like more so through people that are called connectors. Connectors. Yeah, yeah. You know, cause there are, you know, like even on your social media accounts, you know, it's like, okay, this is this person and you have these many friends in common. Right. And I'd love to see like, how many degrees down you could go, right? Like pick some random people from like, you know, Milwaukee. How are we mm -hmm. actually related to each other? Or even how would we be related to each other later, right? You know, we might not have something in common right now, but maybe, maybe later, like we moved to the same neighborhood or our cousins moved to the same neighborhood. Mm -hmm. 
I also write children's books. Um, so I have yes. one coming out this fall. Um, but I'm working on one this summer. And this is what I find interesting. I think you'll be fascinated by this. So I think this is how everyone relates in the world over time, right? Okay. So you could be related to someone that is in the deepest, darkest wilds of Mongolia right now. Right. But you don't know it. That is very true for me. Yeah. By the way. <laughs> really? How? Really? Because. <laughs> all right. So my father is 100% Hungarian. Uh-huh. The Mongolians went through Hungary. Oh, wow. Yeah. So then, but probably like 300 years ago. Right. Like there's someone there in Mongolia 300 years ago that didn't know that they were currently at that time related in some way or going to be connected with someone in Hungary through you in this present day and age. Right. Because like if we think about it, like say seven generations from now, like your, you know, super great grandchild right? That's created at that time. It could be like they have a whole nother line of ancestry of someone that is currently alive right now, but you don't know that person, right? But the way that you are related to that person is like 150 years in the future. What a fascinating... Do you know what I mean? Like a different way of thinking about it. I want to think of us in terms of our oneness. Yeah. I mean, all of us, like humans. Yeah. But that is a beautiful way to look at it. Yeah. Like someone in the Philippines. I mean, that's certainly like, think about just my parents. My mother came from Rio de Janeiro and immigrates to the United States. And then she meets my father, who's a refugee from Hungary. And of course, they meet in New York City. Yeah. Where else? Yes. And now there are people here in the United States from those two. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. And then like, so a hundred years ago, like somebody in, no, even back farther, like someone who would have been in Portugal like before yeah. the Brazil or like, yeah. you know, like before the Brazil, I sound like some old person, <laughs> right? But like someone uh-huh. in Portugal, say like in the year 1800, didn't know that they were related to somebody in Hungary <laughs> through it's you at this time yeah. now, right? Or, yeah. you know, like somebody that's like, you know, indigenous, you know, like all these people at the same time, but they don't know, like later they are related in this V, Right. And the point is like both of their, these people's, you know, triple great grandchild descendant in some way. Really neat stuff. I thought you're, Mm -hmm. I thought you were going to write a book related to fatherhood. I am doing that. Like, so those, those are two projects, right? So I have, um, that children's book one. The other one is. The children's book will be published in the fall, right? Right. Fry Bread. It's called Fry Bread, um, through Macmillan Publishers. Um, and the fatherhood book is one where I just want to gather people's individual stories, um, about the experiences that they've had as a father. Like, are they stay at home dads? Um, are they two dads raising a kid together? How did they 
bring their child into the world? Um, do people ask them weird questions? Like, you know, where's the mom? Like, um, how did, uh, you know, is that kid adopted? You know, like kind of rude questions. Um, I want to know about father's experiences of bringing a child, uh, raising a child as a single parent. So, there have always been a lot of books that are out there about like mothering, right? Mm-hmm. About, um, recommendations for how to be a better parent, right? There that are mostly geared toward women. But then there are fewer books that are dedicated to the man side of the equation. And one of the most interesting aspects of this is say in a country like Sweden, and in Sweden, they have mandatory parental leave for both parents, right? And this is a mandatory. much longer, yes, a much longer period than the United States, right? So we have no paid paternal leave or maternal leave in the United States at all. There is a period not where you, by the government, not but by, by the government, by companies. By, yeah, yeah, companies yeah. So you could, you know, from, you know, it's called FM, FMLA, right? Where you could, um, have unpaid leave for like a number of reasons, but no paid leave, right? But then in Sweden, you can have almost up to two years and then both parents have to share this parental leave or they lose some of the months which is fascinating. So what this has created is this father culture in Sweden where more men are staying home in these children's formative years to take care of children. And so it's this different way. And this has only happened in this. This is a one generational thing. They didn't have Mm -hmm. this like in the fifties. And so like we have more men that are like taking months off of work to change diapers, to, you know, do the nighttime feedings. And so it creates like a responsibility on both parents rather than kind of dumping all of this on the mother and having the Mm -hmm. husband or the boyfriend chime in and be involved. Instead, it starts both parents out on a clean slate where you are both equally responsible for this child, even though the mom might be nursing, um, she might have carried the child, however this child came into the world, but we're allowing for more involvement mm-hmm. from fathers. And so these are these stories that I want to go after about what is it like for you staying home. What is it like for you when you are the one who is at home and your girlfriend or wife or partner is the one that's going to work? How do you feel about that? Um, what are some of the things that you do with your kid? Um, and, and it's also about like, how do we think of men being nurturers, right? We think mm-hmm. of men being like earners and supporters, but we don't think of them so much as like, you know, being all cooey and gooey with a child. And so there's this old school uh, children's book called Daddies, right? And I found this, um, actually, it was in a Baby Zara store. So I opened this Currently? book Currently? Yeah. Um, and I opened up this book and it's like, what do daddies do all day? Daddies work while children play, right? So the whole book is about daddies, 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 but it shows daddy at his work. Like daddy is a writer. Daddy is a judge. 
Daddy is a factory worker. The whole book is about dad at work. He's never with the children until he comes home at the very last page. And then he sits in his chair. His wife brings him his slippers and his cigar. And then he sits <laughs> down in the chair and then he plays with the kids, right? So his contribution to the family is just work, 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 right? Yeah. And there's a corresponding book called Mommies, right? And then what do you think that the mommies are doing, <laughs> right? Really? They're like changing diapers. They're like doing laundry. They're playing with the kids. They're taking the kid to the playground. Actually being a parent, like <laughs> one-on-one, right? And so like, I think that we still have this assumption that that is what it means to be a father. And so Mm -hmm. by writing this book, which would be like a mixture of, you know, a little bit of law, a little bit of psychology, a little bit of sociology, how can we look at fathers and expand these stories, Mm -hmm. these individual stories by interviewing these different men and putting these stories out there and hopefully making more of these stories legitimate and believable? You know, there are biological changes in men when when they become fathers. Like what? <laughs> I'm like, De- tell me. Decreased <laughs> testosterone That's uh, is one of them. Okay. They will have, um, one study found, up to 34% less testosterone. 34%? Wow. That's a lot, right? And what wow. that does, wow. it actually makes them more responsive to the child's cries having less uh, testosterone. Wow. So if you have more, you're... You can't um, hear it. Well, wow. you're less empathetic to the child's cry. Oh, okay. Um, and in addition, if you have less testosterone, you want to stay with your partner more. That's interesting. Yes. You know, I've seen those... Um, what those picture morph things where it'll show like, you know, 100% testosterone male and, you know, and it'll go through all the different percentages until he gets to female, right? Where it says that, um, like, you know, someone who is like 100% testosterone male and it shows a picture, it's like very angular face, like, you know, lantern jaw. <laughs> and as it approaches more like 50%, the face like kind of rounds off. <laughs> and it says that, you know, women, their choice of male partners, when they're thinking about people that they want to marry, it's not the 100% testosterone guy, right? When they're thinking about like, I want someone to raise this child with me, they're going more toward like the 25%, like in between, you know, like the halfway mark and then the Mm -hmm. testosterone. But when they're thinking about just like, I need to, you know, like find someone to hook up with, they always go for the 100% testosterone guy. Yeah, that is accurate. Yeah. And so now I'm like, I'm wondering, where am I on that testosterone scale (laughs) now as Mimi, um, you know, know, like staying home? There are also Mm -hmm. health benefits to having less testosterone. Oh, yeah. So even if, if... A father spends three hours a day Uh, with his child, it decreases his testosterone. But the health benefits are you're less likely to get prostate cancer. Yes, yeah. You'll have a better cholesterol profile. Right. You won't make as many risky decisions. You'll live longer. Well, they're wondering if that is one of the links to why men who have partners, men who are married, are healthier and live longer. Oh, wow. You know, I was talking about this with someone last night um, 
about just like generationally the choices, like the food choices that men make now are very different than what your grandfather would have done. You know, like kind of drinking a lot more scotch, like smoking, like kind of this madman approach to the world, no exercise whatsoever, you know? And then now it's like, I'm gluten-free, vegetarian. I like yoga, you know, like all these other things. And then I'm hoping that like there are health benefits to this, you know, like for longevity, and then just like being alert, you know, longer, um, you know, like fighting off some of these things of um, degeneration and, you know, debilitating old age. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Sounds like biology is preparing you to be the nurturer, right? It's it's what's fascinating is that you said that, you know, the story that's not told is the man is nurturer. It's, It's the man is the head of the household and domineering. Hunter gatherer. Yes. Yeah. But yet what biology, because we thought that was a biological imperative that required men to do that. But what it sounds like is the actual opposite is true, which is you lose testosterone, hencing freeing you up to be more of the nurturer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and um, sounds like I'm being nice in person. Oxytocin as well. Um, Men, so that's like our natural opioid that women will get when they're nursing. And it makes you feel good. It it makes you, you also get that from sex. So um, it makes you bond. Yeah. But men will get that just from looking at photos of their toddlers. Oh, that's you know? interesting. Or if they play with their child, they'll get it. And, uh, and a woman will get it certainly from, you know, touching their child. Yeah. Being more like physical. Like, yes. and, you know, like... um embracing and literally nurturing to the child. Um, so one thing that I've done in the past is I taught um, a group of prisoners at this prison in upstate New York about, I did a class on fatherhood and, oh. and it was really fascinating. One, cause I'd never done this before. And so it's just like only me and this room full of like, you know, there's probably about 60 people, convicts. Right. And so like when I first, before I went, I was a little bit scared. Right. Yeah. Cause I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, you know, like, people, like whatever, <laughs> as if like, they're going to like beat me up right there, you know, yeah. like in the jail. Um, but no, they were interested in how they would maintain relationships with their kids mm-hmm. while they were in prison and then whether it was worth it for them to do it or should they kind of like sever ties because then their kids shouldn't be around you know, someone who had been in prison. And and I was also talking to them about protecting their rights while they were in prison. And these men really wanted to do right by their children. And uh, there were some people that had been in there 20 years or so, you know, and they said, like, yeah, I haven't talked to my kids in a long time. Um, you know, I've grown since being here in prison. I've had a lot of time to think about who I am as an adult now, um, how I can make decisions that are different now, how I could help my kids make better decisions. And it was weird because it seemed like at least their time in prison had softened them a little bit. Mm-hmm. And some of them that had been in there for a shorter time were like, when I get out, like, you know, and I'm going to get out like very, very soon, I'm going to go and, you know, like first thing I do is I'm going to make contact with my kid and I'm going to like be with them like as much as I can, you know, yeah. and it was like, okay, great for your enthusiasm, right? But it did seem that that was part of their 
reform process. And that is what was helping them get through. You like, mean the inspiration of being a father? The inspiration, yeah. Like one day I'm going to get out and I'm going to make these different decisions and I am going to help my kid to never be in a place like this. Mm. And so like, and I'm wondering if there are different levels of um, recidivism or, you know, like create, read, read, you know, ending back up in prison for fathers than non-parents, right? Like do people that don't have kids, do they end up back in jail? Right. And one of the PhD students that I Mm -hmm. supervise on Thursdays, a psychology student, Jackie, she is interested in forensic psychology. And she's noted that she's amazed with hardened criminals who have been in and out of jail, in and out of jail for years. Once they have a child, they change. Wow. It's a marker. Wow. And I wonder if these biological changes are a part of it. Yeah, like, because I wonder if, you know, like testosterone would be part of the reason why they are in prison, right? You know, like... Maybe they're more likely to to be aggressive or have conflict. Yeah. And then like, if you have a child and you then spending time with your child, your testosterone goes down and you're in prison. Yeah. I'd I'd be so interested to read more about that uh, research. And then thinking about that same thing, like for my book project this summer, um, you know, because like, I'm wondering, like, if it is um, being in a partnership, whether it is having a child, whether it is not living by oneself alone, like not just like marriage itself, right? Mm -hmm. But then like, you know, having a roommate, living with other people, having this kind of social contact with other people that would help men to make great choices in their life Mm -hmm. um, and make healthy choices. But then like, I don't want to go too far out on that because it's like, oh, you know, people that are single by themselves are making like horrible choices, you know, like that's like a terrible assumption to make. Um, But then seeing like what the difference would be by having a child, having Mm -hmm. a partner around um, and a partner of any sex. Like would this could be like two guys together, like, you know, two, um, like two people that are male and female. Yes. Yeah. And I think the the child then becomes kind of emblematic of redemption, right? Because yeah. the, the child is now starting anew and the, the parent says, well, I made mistakes in my life, but that doesn't mean you have to either. Yeah. And there's a sense as the child progresses and doesn't make the same mistakes, there's a f- sense of redemption on the behalf of the father. Yeah. I think, and I think that would, to my mind, kind of explain why there's such a bond there, right? Because yeah. it's now... I can't change the past, but I sure can heck change the future with my child. Right. And so I think that is probably what explains some of the bond, at least in my mind. You know, when my six-year-old was probably like four days old, I mean, you know, like still wet, practically. (laughs) And so I was in um, at the apothecary here in the city, like not the drugstore, but like the 
this pharmacy, Bigelow Pharmacy, they call it an apothecary. And so I had him in a sling, like a ring sling. And I love the ring sling so much. You know, because then you could, oh my God. Yeah. You just like put the kid right there. Yeah. Yeah. Free hands. You know, you could just like Mm -hmm. do everything. So I was there and I was really into walking around with the baby by myself, like those first couple of days. Like I can do this, like, you know, Mm -hmm. and then like, It was just awesome. And so we're in the apothecary and this older woman comes up to me, this older white woman comes up to me and she was like, I hope that you will stay in that child's life. Right. And I remember thinking, like, why would she ask me? Like, why would she tell me that? Like, I'm sitting here in a ring sling at the apothecary, like, you know, buying like organic deodorant or something. And then she's already accusing me of being like a deadbeat dad. And this Mm -hmm. kid is like so little right now. And she's like, I hope that you will never leave that child. And I thought like, (laughs) what is it that she is seeing in me right now that would have clued her, cued her off Mm. to one, even thinking that she could make these decisions to talk to me in that way, right? And I remember, like, I probably said something, you know, just, like, very polite, like, oh, yeah, you know, he's, like, under a week old, like, (laughs) this is what we're doing, right? But then, like, hers was just, like, you know, she thinks that, like, I'm just gonna, like, you know, end up, like, you know, away from this child, like, not contacting the child, not talking to the child, not being responsible, just not even being a parent, right? But then, like, would she have done that if I were a woman, no, absolutely not. Right. If right. she had done she that, if, yeah, there's no way. Like, oh, I hope you won't put that child up for adoption. Right. I hope you won't like give the child away. Like, no, she's not going to do that. Um, you know, and then so there have been like experiences like that where people do make assumptions. And then when they make those assumptions, they believe they have the authority to talk to you about Mm. it, right? You know, whether it's like you shouldn't be doing that to your child or like, you know, your kid needs a coat, Um, you know, like your kid shouldn't be wearing flip-flops in, you know, in March or something like that. But I think this is just generally like when you become involved in these like communities of care, Right. You have a child, you have a dog, you have like something else that you're taking care of. It's like an extension and it gives people an in to talk to you or they believe it gives them a reason to talk to you. Cause then if you're just by yourself on the street, they're like not really paying attention to you, but it's like, mm-hmm. Oh, look, you're responsible for this other thing. Now let me tell you how I think that should be done. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I didn't really ask for your opinion. Actually, one time someone did come up and, um, and, you know, offered their opinion on something. I was like, well, as long as we're, you know, here together sharing stories, let me tell you something about yourself, you know? And then I actually said something kind of rude, but like, I don't think I would do that now. This was like a while back, but what is it about like having this like defenseless creature, animal, child or whatever that allows people to talk. And then part of it makes me think like people just want to talk to other people for any reason, right? They want that well, that's connection. True as well, yeah. you're making me think mm-hmm. about one of the cognitive mm-hmm. filters that people will look at the world through, okay. right? That are distorted. Okay. So cognitive distortions. Okay. Such as black and white thinking. Yeah. That's one of them. But one of them is called shoulds. Okay. Shoulds with a capital S. Okay. And they just never work 
for you to tell someone else, you should oh, do it like this, yeah, yeah. right? Or even for us to tell ourselves that. Yeah. Yeah. Shoulds. I think that you should do it like this, right? Like their recommendations for, you know, bettering your own personal family, right? You know, it's like, you've never met me or um, you don't know like where this is going. And like, we live right here um, in Manhattan, uh, like on this park. And so there are a lot of people around. And so like, I've gotten the, you should put a coat on that kid, you know, or you should always leave the house with like a bag of like, you know, supplies when you have a baby. And my thought is like, you don't even know where I live because I live 50 feet from where we are right now. So I don't want to bring it back because I'll just go home. Right. right. Or um, this is the choice that I made because I understand this for me. So your should doesn't really apply, mm -hmm. right? It's not like I'm like far away from my house. Like I don't need to like, you know, pack an expedition bag, you know, just to like go to the Dwayne Reed on the corner. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think it's just about being comfortable in, you know, your own truth and your own reality and then having other people be comfortable with that. And then, realize like that works for you and then my own way and recommendation my own should for how you could be a better parent you know dog owner uh you know car owner whatever it is like might not be the right thing for you right, right. and so and i think like you know just personally like you could say that research Academic research could be me search, right? Because it's about things that are important to you. This is something that is very personal to me, you know, because I just have always dealt with these like assumptions and fighting these assumptions and biases. And so when I'm thinking about like what is interesting to me to write about, it's things that I have personal experience with. Yes. And I guess the question I have too yeah. is, my question was, what happened to that in that woman's life mm. that gave her sort of the assumption <gasps> yeah, right. about, because she's looking at a de demonstrative level of yeah. care, right? Yeah, yeah. And that played against type. Yeah. So therefore, she felt licensed, right? To yeah. Give you instruction. But the question we sometimes should ask, well, the change should happen in her. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, did she have someone walk out on her or like her children, right? Or did she just like see some movie or something, right? Um, but generally, like, I would like to hope I'm more of a glasses half full type thing. Like, you know, she was doing that because she was really concerned about the child. That's how I want to interpret that rather than like, mm -hmm. you know, she's just a like disgruntled old person that doesn't have anyone to talk to. She just talked to me, right? But I would like to think like she is doing that as an extension of her own care for children, the betterment of the world. So how can listeners find you? Um, I have a website, uh, Kevin Millard, M-A-I-L-L-A-R-D.com. Um, and it has, uh, links to all of my writings on there. Um, and it has, um, my academic research, my stuff that I've written for the Times and also the Atlantic as well. Um, kevinmillard.com. And Frybread will be accessible in the fall. In the I, fall. It's there October. on Amazon, but. Yeah, you can buy it pre-sale. You can only yeah. pre-sale. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
thank you. It oh, was, thanks, Alex. This I, is awesome. I'm delighted to have had you on the show. Yeah, it's great that we can still do this 25 years later. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode of Psychology America with Dr. Alexandra, show your support by leaving an awesome rating on iTunes. If you'd like to share your comments or ideas about this podcast, follow us on Facebook under Psychology America. Lastly, Dr. Alexandra has written an inspiring children's book entitled There's Always Hope, a story about overcoming, which is beautifully illustrated by Brianna Giasulo. There's Always Hope, a story about overcoming, teaches children about finding joy and gratitude, even when things don't go exactly as planned, and can be found at psychologyamerica.com or amazon.com. <laughs>